Welcome back to Meant for Moxie. Stay tuned as I follow up with Gemma Hoskins of Netflix, The Keepers, for the latest in the investigation of the cold case murder of Sister Kathy Sesnick in Baltimore, Maryland in 1969. Special appearance of Gemma's dog, Teddy, as well, because, well, life happens. Meant for Moxie mini-sode, and we are back again with my awesome guest, Gemma Hoskins from The Keepers. And I know that we loved hearing about what a badass Gemma is and the great women who've inspired her, but now we're going to get into the juice and dirt and scandal and updates on The Keepers and the investigation into the crimes of the evil Father Joseph Maskell. So welcome back, Gemma. Thank you. It's good so, to be back. Thank you. Okay, so um, I want to start with this. Um, let's. I'm going to let you freestyle a little bit here. What is kind of the latest update? And well, let's just start with that. What would what would you say is your latest update in the investigations to the abuses and the murder of Sister Kathy? And I know there are some other crimes that we're thinking are now connected. Right. Well. An update is that Shane and I are beginning to look into other murders. We feel like we have done everything we can, and all the people who were involved in helping, um, especially Abby and Jean and the survivors, in finding out what happened to Kathy. Right now, the police are waiting on some test results that, to my knowledge, have not um, come back yet. I have to do to say, though, that the police are not permitted to tell me anything. I would love to go over there and sit and look at all the records, but I can't do that because this is a active cold case. And that would, um, if I did that, that would probably negate anything they came up with because they would have to say that they allowed Gemma Hoskins or whoever to look at the records. So I'm not a police officer. I'm not a detective. I would just I, I would like bust my front teeth out and hand them over if they would let me do that, but that's not going <laughs> to happen. So I do know that it's very active. Uh, more than one body was exhumed and that's all I can say about that. Hmm. And yep. And um, so people say the police aren't doing anything while well, they are. And the cold case uh, corporal who was in charge of the investigation, Corporal Robin Teal, is now in homicide, but she still is my contact person. And she still, uh, whatever information I get, I send it to her immediately. Shane and I are really good about that. Anyway, <laughs> so, um, okay, other updates. We are waiting on testing from Kathy's case. Yes. We had some uh, FOIA attorneys help us with Joyce Malecki's case. But we have learned that um, the Maleckis, uh, we have heard from the FBI that they are not going to release Joyce's files because that, too, is an active cold case. Now, 
it's been 50 years and the family's never been told anything. Mm-hmm. So that's concerning. But right now, there's nothing else we can do about it except to keep looking. And we have found some new people to talk to connected to that case, which we haven't done yet, but we're working on it. There are at least four other murders of young people that happened around the same time in the same area of Baltimore County. And Shane and I are moving forward to get information about them. So I'm going to just put the names out there. People can start Googling and helping us out. Grace, <laughs> Grace Montagna, Pam Conyers, Danny Crochetti, Heather Porter, and of course, Kathy and Joyce. So we will be doing podcasts about those cases in the future. We have also talked to experts in MK Ultra because we do believe that Maskell and some of his connections were either part of MK Ultra or trying to replicate the mind control experiments that the CIA did during the 50s and 60s and early 70s uh, in terms of trying to force amnesia and have children subjected to experimentation in order to get them to be covert spies, which sounds that, like science fiction, but it's not. It really happened. I, the Manchurian Candidate was one of my favorite movies of all time. Mm-hmm. And so those episodes of the podcast were so gripping because I really believe that kind of suggested hypnotherapy and all of those things. And so many of the questions you had from the women who are survivors really right. aligned with, you know, what, what we've seen and learned in that kind of, um, you know, programming. Yeah. It's really right. programming. It is. And I, I want your listeners to know that, and you can post this when it comes time. Um, in the next month, we will we have done an interview with a woman who was an MK Ultra uh, mind control subject. She's an adult, but as a child from the age of eight to 14, she was trafficked around the United States to military bases and hospitals. Uh, and Christian Richter, the gynecologist from the Keepers, was her uh, contractor. And she has handlers that still keep track of her to this day. So, so Christian Richter, who, uh, for those who are not aware, is the gynecologist that Father Joseph Maskell would take these young women to for quote-unquote DNCs, uh, right. but really illegal abortions Absolutely. Um, in the we 60s and yeah. 70s. And this is the same guy that we're talking about. So, yes. yep. wow. He took, that's, he took her to um, NASA in Alabama, and he took her to a hospital in Boston. She's going to talk about it in detail. She's credible. She is an artist. She expresses her pain and her art. She's quite an amazing woman, and I totally believe everything she said. Wow. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Um, okay. Next question. There are two protected identities, major protected identities in the Netflix documentary. One is the young woman who went with her boyfriend to Sister Kathy and Sister Russell's apartment 
the night before she passed and father Maskell and I believe it was father Magnus showed up. Yes, correct. Um, and they were reporting, this young woman was reporting her abuse to Kathy. So the time is at best fishy. The other is the, um, detective who you guys hilariously use the 1970s reference of deep throat. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that either of these folks would ever change their minds and go public with their stories? Um, well, I've never said the woman, the girl's name out loud because I insist that I will have no part in uh, making her identity public. I won't mm-hmm. do that. I doubt it very much. She is a happy, lovely, wonderful person. And this is a decision she's made. Everybody made their own decision. And I respect all of that. Mm-hmm. So um, her identity would not come from me. Um, I've actually never spoken to her by phone. We've, we've uh, written back and forth. And that's how I was able to to share information that she was willing to share. Okay. The other guy, Deep Throat, um, he doesn't like me. So I kind of, <laughs> I don't care. He brags about what he knows, but he, um, he trashes me and says I'm crazy. And um, I don't really care. I doubt very much. We invited him to be um, on the podcast. Of course, he responded by saying, you're going to get somebody killed. And I don't have time for that. So he was the only one that the filmmakers actually agreed to change his voice and not show his face. Nobody else was given that privilege because everybody else was right out there in front, especially the survivors, talking about what happened to them. So I um, I don't have any communication with him except when he said, you're going to get somebody killed. And I'm not interested in having any conversation with him because I think he knows a lot. And I don't know how much of it he has actually shared with the police who were on this investigation. Okay. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. Yep. Um, do, do you want to see if he'll stop if he was like with you? Well, right. your story about giving him like peanut butter and Benadryl was oh, yeah. hysterical. So. Right. <laughs> we did. We were we were filming in my home and the cameraman said, Okay, you have to turn the heat off. Uh there's something running that like your dishwasher or something, all that has to be off. And we have to figure out what to do with Teddy. So we were in the dining room, the producer who was a dear friend, Jessica Hargrave, wonderful young lady. Her jo- One of her duties, she said, was to sit in the other room and take notes. And then when Ryan was finished asking me questions, they would look at the notes and see if there were any follow-up questions that he should ask me. Well, this is what we were doing. And she was in the kitchen with Teddy. We couldn't see them. And we heard a big crash. And there's Jessica on the floor with the dog. We had given him Benadryl and she was feeding him peanut butter to get him to be (laughs) quiet. And she fell off the chair. So, um, you know, I don't know what to say. I've never had a dog before. So I hope your listeners understand and know that my voice probably carries over 
over the barking, but we're good. Life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're good. So my next question, Miss Gemma, do you think that this crime or at least a big chunk of it will be solved? A year ago, I would have said yes. Right now, I'm trying to get my head around the possibility that this is not going to have the solution we want or would like to have, but I'm not giving up. Um, It is possible that because of time or lack of evidence or destruction of evidence or cover-up that we may not know who killed Sister Kathy. I have my own opinion, but a cold case can only be solved with DNA, an eyewitness, or a confession. All three of those are possible, but none of those are likely right now. Because it's, so, 50, it's 50 years. Yeah. M- miracles happen. You know, it would be wonderful if we had some closure. But I don't think it's rocket science to, tr- to figure out who was involved in her murder. I think there's enough circumstantial evidence to make a pretty good guess and have a likely theory but that's not what the police do. They have to have one of those three things at least in order to come to that conclusion. Are you able to, and I apologize that I don't understand what kind of legal limitations you have. Are you able to pose your theoretical timeline? I'm not sure I understand your question. Well, as far as like how the crime was committed, like what, what I think, you know, okay. as in as obviously there's so much detail and so much information, mm-hmm. but from, mm-hmm. you know, Kathy went shopping, Kathy right. came home, sure. who you think did it kind of. Mm-hmm. Yes, I can. Okay. Um, when the keepers first aired, I made the mistake of speculating what I think happened in an interview. And Ryan was like, okay, you can't do that because now everybody in the world is going to say what Gemma said. Mm -hmm. And I've run into that before as a teacher. When I was an itinerant teacher mentor, you know, I'd be at school A on Monday and Wednesday. And on Tuesday, somebody would have said, well, Gemma said to do it this way. And on Wednesday, I went in, they were all doing it this way. And that wasn't what I said. So I have to be very careful about that. I mean, it's not like my name is Mary Smith, you know. Right. It's it's like Gemma Hoskins says, well, yeah, I act like I know everything, but (laughs) So, um, yeah, so I'm comfortable speculating now because I don't really owe anything to anybody. And I'm happy to do that if you would like me to. But I want to, again, the word is clarification here. I want to clarify that this is only my opinion based on what I have learned. So is that what you want me to do? Sure. If you are comfortable with that, I know we'd love to hear it. Yep. All right. My opinion is that Kathy returned from shopping and when she was sitting in her car, I believe that Billy Schmidt, who was her neighbor, approached her. She knew him. She wouldn't have been afraid of him. I do think he was obsessed with her. He may have been in love with her. And I do know they were friends because they were neighbors. Mm -hmm. Our friend Mary Spence said she heard some yelling. 
I do believe that happened. And I think it was maybe Billy yelling at Kathy. At some point, I believe that she was pushed in her car over to the passenger seat. And I think a man got into the driver's seat. I think at least one other man was in the back seat. We know that a witness alleges that they saw a woman trying to get out of a car on the passenger side on North Bend Road, which is where Kathy and Russell lived. The apartments were on North Bend Road, going south towards another main road, and that she was pulled back in. Now, if one man was in the car with her, that would be kind of difficult. And I believe Kathy would have fought. Some people say, oh, no, she was too mild-mannered. But no, she was strong and willful. And I think if somebody were going to hurt her, she would have tried to use her brains and get out of there. But we know that her, uh, she was strangled at some point. And that strangulation could have made her unconscious. I always felt that somebody in the back seat perhaps strangled her and that she was unconscious while they were driving her to wherever they took her. I think that two police officers were involved in her murder. Uh, I, we all know now that James Scannell was one of the abuser police officers. And Jean has talked about a brother, Bob. My opinion is that that was a police officer named Bob. And he told Jean, I killed that nun with a pipe. And I think that's what happened. So I believe that they were taken to where the Schmitz had their business. I think that Billy Schmidt and Edgar Davidson, this is just my story now, okay? It's just what I put together. I think that once Kathy was murdered, they were the cleanup crew. They both went home in bloody shirts. And I've talked to Edgar's first wife. I assumed he came home at six in the morning. No, he came home before midnight. And she said, why are you home? Because he worked at night, supposedly. And he had a bloody shirt. So she said he spent the whole next day out when they had just brought their their little girl home from the hospital. He goes out and puts new tires on the car, okay? They needed money to get the child out of the hospital. And how coincidentally that he had the money that was probably the money Kathy got from her paycheck. So Uh, I do believe that Edgar and Billy were deeply involved. I think they were hired. I think that Maskell choreographed the whole thing and was somewhere else waiting. I don't think he would have gotten his hands dirty or run the risk of being um, discovered. I think he definitely had an alibi that was a true alibi, you know, watching a movie with his mother or somebody, I don't know. Um, I think that Billy drove Kathy's car back to the carriage house apartments. A witness said that they saw Kathy's car driving out of the parking lot following someone. And my feeling is that that 
would have been when she was being abducted and that if Billy was driving, Kathy was in the passenger seat. I'm going to put a name out there, Bobby Thompson, who was a very close friend of Edgar's, I think was involved in this as well. I think he was in the back seat, and I think he may have been responsible for strangling Kathy. And I think they followed Edgar. And once she was murdered, I think that um, Edgar's first wife believes that she was in the trunk of his car. It's possible he wouldn't let his wife open the trunk. So I think that it took them the next day to figure out where to put her. Uh, Jean has shared with some people, including the police, where she was taken to see Kathy's body. And right. that is not where Kathy was found. So the story about Brian Schmidt, the young boy who said he saw his uncles taking a rug out of the nun's apartment, I think that happened. But I think it was weeks after Kathy was abducted. And I think what he saw was them taking a blanket out of the nun's apartment so that a blanket from their own apartment would have had their hair and fibers on it if anybody was going to look at it closely. I don't think a blanket would have been missed from the nun's apartment the way a rug would have. The apartment was never a crime scene. We know that. We know that there were, you know, once the priests arrived, there were people in and out of there, like probably for the next 24 hours. So um, I think that's what happened. I think Edgar, I thought it was obvious in the series that he knew everything because he called her Kathy. Right. He didn't call her the nun. He didn't call her sister Sesnick. He said, that's Kathy. Well, you don't call people Kathy unless you're friends with them. And he said, that's Maskell. But he claims not to have had anything to do with it. And I don't believe that. I think he and Billy were um, hired to do the dirty work. And I do believe that two police officers were involved in her murder. So, gosh, that was a whole lot I just said. Yeah. Um, again, it's my opinion. It's Correct. only my opinion. I could be totally wrong. Okay. All right. Well, I got a big question for our final question. Mm -hmm. If he were alive today, what would you say to Father Joseph Maskell? Okay. Nobody's ever asked me that either. Which surprises me. That's, right. I yeah. would think that would be like the first question. Nope. Okay, first of all, to me, he was like a total nerd. I hardly knew the man. I just knew he was like the priest that said mass and confessions, and I never went to confession at school. So uh, Probably, um, now, thank God. Thank God yeah, you didn't. No, right? really. <laughs> now, yeah, now that I know about what he did, I do not believe I could be in the same room with him because I believe he was evil on earth. And I feel bad for the grave diggers who had to exhume his body because I'm sure a lot of evil negative energy was emanating from that cemetery. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would not be able to be physically in his presence because I can't live that way. I really try to exude positive energy and I can't take any negative energy in. Mm -hmm. What I would say to him, I would ask him who killed Kathy and what I would say to him is, fuck you, 
And I think I would probably have to execute some kind of uppercut or hit him in the head, like smack him on his head, or maybe like a knee to the groin would be more appropriate and might be easier to do. So, um, yeah, not, would not be nice. It would not be pretty. I, I actually resemble that completely because mm-hmm. I had a completely visceral reaction to so many of the people Mm-hmm. Uh, watching that, and uh, my husband did as well. Um, you know, we sat and binged it over the course of seven hours, and the kids would mm-hmm. walk through the room like, "Hey, what's for dinner?" I'm like, "Cereal, shut up!" <laughs> um, <laughs> and it 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 actually took mm-hmm. sort of emotional toll on me. Oh, and yeah. I've watched it several times, which my husband says I'm a total glutton for punishment. But um, you know, the the true crime conspiracy theory obsessed inner me uh, loves that part of it. But as we talked about in the first part of the podcast, just the unbelievably strong women who have fought against their abuse, this, this psychological damage, um, which is as powerful as shrapnel that they've endured for their lives um, to Teresa Lancaster and Jean Weiner and so many of these women who have found a way to survive. And my heart breaks for those who didn't get out of it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I do, I do hope there comes to be some resolution for this. And I know I am totally glued to the next installment of Out of the Shadows as well. So I will be linking everything in the podcast notes so that you guys can find Gemma and Shane's podcast. And thank you again so very much for spending your morning with me. My pleasure. My pleasure, Sam. And thank you for reaching out to me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me, Sam Ditka, at Meant for Moxie, the podcast. Shane Waters, investigative journalist, and Gemma Hoskins, grassroots sleuth, continue searching for answers in Out of the Shadows podcast found at shadowspod.com. Make sure you follow them there. If you or someone you know is a survivor of clergy abuse, please contact snapnetwork.org. That's www.snapnetwork.org for help in reporting. Meant for Moxie is the companion podcast to Moxie Mama by Sam Ditka. More information can be found at www.moxiemama.tv. That's www.moxiemama.tv. Stay tuned for my next episode where I sit down with New York Times bestselling author and acclaimed director, Stephen Chbosky. Meant for Moxie is produced by Timothy Ditka. Music, the energy, is courtesy of Abhisht Music and can be found on iTunes. Music.